Hello, and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright, Constable, and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to surety claims professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry. Hello, everyone. Um, On this always solemn 22nd anniversary of the September 11th attacks, um, I do wish you a good afternoon or good morning, depending on where you're listening from, and welcome you to this edition of Surety Today. Uh, My name is Cindy Rogers Ware. Um, I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright Constable and Skeen, uh, based in our Baltimore office. And I want to, of course, start this episode with a thank you uh, to all of our listeners and supporters of Surety Today. Um, We are now up to 86 episodes of Surety Today, and you can listen to it, uh, any one of them or all of them, um, from anywhere at any time um, over uh, a multitude of different platforms. Um, You can go to our Surety Today page on our website at wcslaw.com or as a podcast at Spotify, uh, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podbean. I confess I don't even know what all of those are. Um, But if you search for Surety Today, um, you can find them there or at our microsite at suretytoday.net. And at this point, we have um, surpassed uh, over 10,000 downloads of our podcast. So we're very excited uh, to continue to provide these materials to you. And we have uh, muted the line during the presentation to avoid any uh, background noise. Today, um, I decided it was a good time to do uh, another recent case update. Um, We do these probably once or twice a year uh, to sort of talk about new developments. And I I confess that there is not really any overarching theme here to the uh, cases that I wanted to discuss today, but rather um, it's just cases that Um, came up to me as um, issues that um, are are thorny situations that come up uh, from time to time and that, at least in my humble opinion, don't always have uh, an easy resolution. Maybe that's why there's case law about them. But um, just from an intellectual standpoint, I was interested in... uh, Sort of looking at these cases, some of them uh, are very new cases. So while the issue has been raised, they are probably things that I'm going to hopefully be able to continue to to follow uh, because I would I'm curious to see how the courts uh, address uh, some of these topics. Um, when I unmute the line at the end uh, of the discussion, um, and usually we always say we welcome questions then. Um, I am curious not only for questions, but also just 
comments, suggestions, solutions of times that you have, may have come up um, with these issues before and how you have addressed them, um, whether it's worked uh, or whether it didn't work. Um, you know, no, no judgment here. Um, you know, if we can all as an industry sort of learn from um, how things have progressed, it, it helps all of us. So uh, without further ado, let me uh, discuss the first topic um, where there has been a recent case. And this is the idea of the problem of excess, what I call excess bond claims. Um, and this is to sort of set the scenario, we're talking about a situation where the surety has been promptly investigating and dutifully paying uh, valid claims. This may be, typically this may be in, in a payment bond scenario, but it can also easily happen um, for commercial bond claims, particularly on those commercial bonds that have fairly low penal sums. Um, and after the surety has been uh, doing its job uh, investigating and paying, some new large claims come in later in the process, uh, at which point the surety then realizes that if all these claims were uh, valid in their full amount, that it would result in uh, obligations in excess of the penal sum of the bond. And, you know, again, this is not finding fault with anyone. Uh, we all know that there are circumstances where the surety simply can't get um, access to books and records of its principal or can't get um, full access uh, from the principal up front to, to be able to uh, even estimate the full magnitude of the claims that are coming in. Either the principal has shut down uh, and is just not operating and the records are gone. The principal may be in bankruptcy um, and there are different processes that are slowing things down to get access to books and records. Um, the principal frequently, unfortunately, thinks of the surety as the enemy in some cases and will not voluntarily cooperate despite it usually being in their own interest to cooperate. Or sometimes they give access to the records, but the records are just so poorly maintained uh, that they are not accurate. Um, and the natural assumption, I think, particularly with payment bond claims, is if the principal did any remotely competent job of estimating the project, um, the payment bond claims from subcontractors and suppliers should not be greater than the amount of the principal's contract. Uh, and yet um, this scenario does, does come up. Um, and I, I look at this scenario with assurity as a sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't scenario because as a surety, you do have the obligation to timely investigate and pay claims. And claimants who make their claims early uh, aren't necessarily going to be willing to wait around for months uh, or longer for the applicable claims period to expire such that the surety then knows the full magnitude of valid timely claims. Um, it's much more likely they are going to run out of patience, 
sue uh, the surety and possibly make you know more serious allegations against the surety, such as you know bad faith or unfair claims practices. So, but at the same time, we have to look at it. Is it fair that you know the early claimants uh, get paid in full, while later claimants whose claims may still be timely uh, only get a partial payment of whatever is left, or even worse, no payment at all. Um, certainly in those cir- circumstances with with payment bond claimants, we see them occasionally also trying to then make a claim against the performance bond uh, to sort of make up for that uh, situation where they may not get paid in full uh, from the payment bond. And that, that creates its own uh, dilemma, which the courts have not really addressed um, uh, with a whole lot of consistency. Uh, So what do you do? I mean, certainly as soon as the surety is aware that there's a penal sum issue, the surety should file an interpleader action. Um, And that's what happened here in a a case in June that was filed in June in California, uh, which is... uh, U.S. XREL Terry Bedford Concrete Construction versus Argonaut Insurance Company. Um, that case was unfortunately, or is a scenario where the surety had already paid several valid payment bond claims in full and then received more claims that would have the effect of exceeding the bond penal sum. And so the surety sought to interplead the remaining penal sum balance, but um, did not seek, like is common in, in, in typical interpleader actions, did not seek to be discharged from its liability or dismissed from the case. In a, a sort of normal interpleader scenario, the surety puts, and where no claims have been paid, the surety puts the penal sum or asked to put the penal sum into the court and be dismissed and walked away. Walk away. Here, because of the scenario, the surety did not uh, ask for that. And because of that reason, uh, over some claimants' objections, the, sur- the, the court agreed to allow the surety to put the remaining uh, funds in, but at, that, at this point has not expressed any opinion as to what the surety's liability is to uh, the remaining uh, unpaid claimants. Now, it does also appear in this case that the surety may have named as defendants the claimants that it had already paid. Um, so I find that very interesting um, to, to potentially bring in the ones that have already been paid to see whether there is some way that the court could retroactively, I suppose, give um, uh, ask those who had been paid in full to return some funds for there to be a true pro rata distribution. Um, I'm, I'm very curious to see how that will, will work, um, and I'm also curious as to, you know, how the best way to, to handle this scenario, because it's always a dilemma if you don't have a full handle on the magnitude of claims, especially on commercial bonds where sometimes the penal sums, um, uh, motor vehicle dealer bonds, things of that are very low, and when somebody, you know, goes belly up or, or engages in improper behavior, it seems there are always going to be claims um, 
beyond the um, the penal sum of the bond. In some of those scenarios, I would think um, it would be wise to to file an interpleader at the very beginning, even if it turns out that some of the claims aren't valid and um, there may not end up needing to be a pro rata distribution um, once the validity is sorted out, but uh, it seems better safe than sorry. It's a much more difficult scenario, I think, in the, in the payment bond situation where, um, you know, you have a much bigger uh, penal sum in most cases. And again, the assumption would be that the estimating was not so bad that you're going to end up with payment bond claims in excess of of the bond penal sum. But as we've seen here, it, it does happen. Um, and so I will be curious to see how this, the Eastern District of California uh, sorts out this situation. Um, there is not a whole lot of old case law. Um, I have found a case from 1935 that basically said that, you know, as long as the surety made the earlier payments in good faith and without knowledge of these other you know, actual or constructive claims um, that the surety's uh, liability would not exceed um, the penal sum of the bond. Um, but there's really not a whole lot out there. Situation number two that I wanted to talk about with a recent case, uh, and this I was curious about because I have a, a analogous situation on a matter that I'm working on. So what uh, our general assumption is that, you know, the project uh, is going to get completed, uh, whether by our principal or a completion contractor or the obligee uh, by somebody. But what happens when the project work ends up getting demolished uh, due to the alleged um, substantial defects in the work that was being performed? Um, and this can come up, I think, in, in a couple of different scenarios. Um, it can come up for a surety as a potential performance bond defense where it's the obligee that has done the demolition after the principal was default terminated. Or it can come up in a payment bond scenario where the principal has default terminated the claimant and the principal has demolished the claimant's work. Um, that was a scenario that came up in a recent case out of um, District Court in New Jersey called Colorado Custom Rocks Corporation versus GNC Fabcon LLC, uh, and an opinion that came out in May of 2023. Um, the general contractor had subcontracted with the claimant who did masonry work on um, a VA project. Uh, why am I not surprised it's a VA project? But in any event. Um, the general contractor did some surveying that indicated that the walls that the claimant had um, constructed were not plumb. Uh, general contractor sent the claimant a notice to cure, but did not include its survey data with the notice. The claimant responded saying that the notice to cure didn't have sufficient information uh, for it to be able to cure these alleged defects and requested a meeting uh, as, which the general contractor then uh, denied. Ultimately, the VA engineer who did see the survey results um, directed that the building had to be, or buildings had to be 
demolished. And as a result, the general contractor did terminate the claimant's masonry subcontract for default. Prior to the demolition, the claimant asserted that any destruction of the buildings would amount to spoliation of the evidence, but the general contractor went ahead with the demolition anyway. Um, and then when the claimant filed a Miller Act claim against the general contractor and its surety, the general contractor counterclaimed for breach of contract and other claims, and the claimant moved to dismiss the counterclaims and suppress all of the data documentation that were not provided to the claimant at the time it was default terminated or alternatively for a, uh, a spoliation inference when the case went to trial. Um, the court did recognize that the general contractor was kind of between a rock and a hard place in that the VA was demanding that the uh, buildings be demolished uh, and the subcontractor was basically saying preserve the buildings as evidence. Um, however, the court um, recognized that the general contractor could have taken some further steps here um, to sort of protect itself. Um, it could have provided the claimant with the survey data at the time of the notice to cure or even at the time of default termination. It could have allowed the claimant a final right to uh, access to the buildings and testing prior to demolition, but instead it elected to sort of withhold all that and deny access. Um, and while the court did not uh, grant the request for dismissal of the counterclaim, it did rule in the claimant's favor in terms of providing an adverse inference at trial. Um, so here, um, despite this dilemma, um, there were some steps that the principal could have taken that may have ended up with a different uh, result. Um, but this is a unique situation. It doesn't happen very often, but I do find myself uh, in this situation now where it was the obligee um, who uh, demolished without notice uh, to the principal. Uh, the principal has, had been already default terminated and um, a surety council, I'm sort of sitting on the sidelines uh, at this point, though fortunate, fortunately uh, observing um, how that information will be used by the principal's uh, council in a wrongful termination claim. Um, I assume that uh, similar arguments will be made by our principal in that case uh, in an effort to get the um, termination overturned. Um, but we will see uh, how that plays out, but it can be sort of used uh, on both sides. Um, the last situation that I want to talk about um, with a recent case is the issue of discovery of communications between the surety and the principal. Um, this gets addressed a lot. Um, we always have discovery requests where um, a claimant, whether that's um, the obligee, or a subcontractor or other bond claimant wants to get all of, all of the communications, all the documents between the principal and the surety. Um, and we all know from the very beginning when a claim comes in that um, the surety will send out that sort of standard uh, letter to its principal saying, 
this claim's been received, you know, give me all of these records, tell me what your defenses are, if you have any, and the whole, we all know that laundry list of, of requests. Um, and it's not always clear that um, we convey in that uh, request uh, the surety's position as to whether those response that is given is privileged or not privileged. Um, in, a, in a recent case out of New York, a uh, decision uh, just came down uh, a couple weeks ago in August um, in M. Frank Higgins and Company versus Dobco Inc. Um, the court was presented with several discovery disputes related to privileges that were being asserted by the principal and its surety. Um, with those parties invoking um, the common interest doctrine that to protect communications between the surety and the principal, as well as a consulting expert privilege to protect documents and communications between the surety and the principal and several consultants that had been retained by those parties. Um, what the court ruled um, initially is that um, you know not every document or communication is going to be protected by the common interest doctrine. It has to satisfy the elements of attorney-client privilege or work product doctrine. Um, and where a there has to be a, a sort of joint defense effort or strategy that's been decided upon and undertaken by the parties and their counsel um, stating basically a common interest in the defense of this legal matter. And the court would not sort of grant a, a blanket application to all of the communications. It, uh, it basically was requested additional information from the parties. Uh, same with the consulting expert privilege assertion the court again said it would not blanketly apply it and requested additional information in order to determine whether the experts had been retained for in anticipation of litigation um, and to what extent those reports might be discoverable based upon um, reliance upon the reports that were provided. Um, so where do we go from here, um, what ways can we um, make this a, a more successful outcome in all cases and improve our chances of having the privilege apply? Um, there's a lot of different scenarios here. Sometimes we have very sophisticated principles and others are much less sophisticated. Uh, some have their own counsel that are engaged and are participating throughout and in other cases, uh, the principal does not have any counsel, uh, and we're dealing with a, a pro se party. Um, and there are situations where um, the claimant only sues the surety, but then may send a document request to the principal uh, you know, through a subpoena, uh, and that principal then may produce records that perhaps the surety would have wanted to claim privilege on, uh, and somehow that information ends up getting into uh, the claimant's hands where maybe there could have been a case where 
um, with better planning and so forth, um, it might have been prevented from being disclosed. Because let's face it, when we, we send out those letters requesting information, um, it, it just like in any attorney-client privilege scenario where an attorney's uh, defending someone, um, we want uh, we want the the honest assessment. Uh, we want to know the the strengths and weaknesses and and the warts in the case, so that we can evaluate um, where to go with the case in terms of defending it, settling it, paying the claim. So those those that candid information is very important for the surety to be able to do. Um, a good assessment of liability and of damages, um, but we also, uh, for that principle to be able to give us that candid assessment, we, we need to be able to rely on the fact that um, that isn't going to have to be produced in discovery. So um, we probably, as an industry, um, some of us do more formal joint defense agreements. Um, I don't think that they are routinely done with every claim that comes in. And uh, a question will be sort of going forward, um, you know, what's the best way to address this scenario? Again, this is a case where I, I hope to sort of be uh, following it and seeing further how, what's, what's the best way to address this in a way that uh, where the surety can get the information that it needs and protect what is you know, generally should be privileged information while not also then trying to protect things that are really just basic um, principles records that, you know, should have to be produced and are not covered by privilege. So um, I, I look forward to sort of seeing uh, uh, an additional opinion in that case, perhaps to sort of give some additional guidance going forward. Um, well, I don't want to take up too much more of this time um, I will skip the last case that I was going to talk about. Um, uh, before I open up the line for questions, comments, I want to thank everyone for joining me today. Uh, the next episode of Surety Today will be on Monday, October 9th at 1230 Eastern Time. Um, some upcoming events in the surety world. Um, this week, September 13th, uh, the Philadelphia Surety Claims Association lunch. Uh, September 20th to 23rd, we will be, uh, our firm is one of the proud co-sponsors of the Northeast Fidelity and Surety Claims Conference in Atlantic City, um, and our own Tom Moran will be presenting this year. Um, October 11th to 13th, National Bond Claims Association will have its annual meeting at Horseshoe Bay Resort uh, near Austin, Texas. And if you go to our Surety Today blog website at wcslaw.com, you can see a calendar of all uh, upcoming Surety events. Again, uh, thanks to everyone for your attention. And I will um, now uh, unmute the line. Does anyone have any questions, comments, war stories? Um, about any of the uh, topics we discussed today or have any uh, insight about the, the best way moving forward with some of these um, tricky issues that come up? All right, I guess everyone's going to be quiet today. Um,
again, thank you all for attending and uh, hope to uh, have you join us again uh, next month for our next uh, episode of Surety Today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable, and Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.